Romans 16, verse 25 through 27. You know, uh, as we get into this, Paul's going to talk about us being established. We, we use the word established. We talk about it uh, in terms of a home or maybe a business. We get established in our business. We mean that there's a lot of work, especially in the beginning, but afterwards we can enjoy the benefits because we're an established business. Paul ends his letter to the Romans telling them that God is able to establish them. And and what you want to notice from the very beginning is that's a work God does, not something that you do. Right away, if you're like me, maybe you're not like me, but right away I always read things into the Bible. I read something like God will establish you, and I think, well, what do I need to do to establish myself? How do I get established? And I miss the whole point. God says, no, Paul says, no, God will establish you. Uh, it, it's, it's more like a father turning over his business to his son. It's, the work has been done. It's all established. And then you just kind of enjoy the benefits. And so what is the work he's done to establish you? That's what we're going to focus on as we close out Romans. And of course, like everything else, it's simple. Uh, verse 25 says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, of course, good news, it's a reference to the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the earlier chapters of Romans where Paul let us know that believing sinners are justified, they're declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our part is simply to believe and believing is not a work. Why does he call it my gospel? Well, one reason could be simply to emphasize how much he loved the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel is a universal message given to meet a universal need. It's a message to all men. It doesn't belong to Paul or to either any of us individually. But when it is received, its power and effectiveness become yours personally. Calling it my gospel is an endearing way of saying Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe, and that's me. And so the minute, you know, if you got saved later in life, the minute before you got saved, the gospel was, uh, you know, Jesus was the savior of all men, but now he's especially your savior because you have believed. And so in that sense, in that endearing sense, we would all say it's my gospel because I've received it. My gospel also reminds us that Paul was often attacked by legalistic Judaizing teachers uh, of preaching an incomplete gospel message. Everywhere Paul went, these guys would follow him and they would say, oh, did you guys get saved? You Gentiles, you got saved under the preaching of Paul? Yeah. Well, that's a good beginning, but Paul, you know, he's, he's kind of out in left field, and he didn't tell you that you have to be circumcised, and you have to keep the Sabbath, and you have to keep some of these other rules and regulations, and they were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul preached grace alone while they added works of righteousness as being necessary for salvation. My gospel was a way Paul had of referring to his grace alone message, which was the correct message, the true gospel taught by him and all the other apostles. It wasn't that it was anything different than what Peter taught or than what James taught or any of the other guys, but it was different uh, from what these false teachers uh, were teaching. You can never be established unless you're saved. 
uh, it's bedrock. That's the absolute bedrock principle. And, um, you know, we li- you, you, you and I sit here and we think, well, of course, that's fundamental. Uh, but more and more we live in a pluralistic culture and society where we're <clears throat> asked to accept all kinds of isms and belief systems and uh, rivals to Christianity. And um, we need to remember that the only solid ground, the only bedrock is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do, uh, because we're a, a society, and when we do have to work together with others in social projects and things like that, in politics and all, uh, we want to remember still that the most important thing ultimately has to be eternal life. Everything else is important. Everybody can have their, their area that they really are excited about or what activates them or what they default talk about after church and all that. That's fantastic. You know, mine is coffee, which is useless to anybody. You know, yours is probably more important than mine. If you want me to get all excited at after church, just ask me a, a coffee question, you know. While everybody else is arguing about politics and all the important issues of the day, I'm trying to figure out the next great coffee beverage. But, you know, but separate from all of that, we all need to agree that the bedrock, bottom line, Jesus Christ and him crucified. People need to hear the gospel and they need to get saved. And so no, there's no establishing anybody anywhere, anytime without that foundation. And you won't be truly established unless the gospel you've received is Paul's gospel, the message of grace alone. If you start adding works of any kind, you lose your solid footing and you begin to trust in your own self-righteousness. And that might, sadly, that might even work for you for your entire life, especially here in our, the wonderful United States in which we live because we have so many resources and abilities at our, you know, uh, disposal. You can live self-righteously and, and think that you're really smart financially and you've, you've, you know, dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's and you've got all your discipline down and all this stuff and that, you know, that you're really adding to your salvation and all. Uh, but it, it, it really, you're taking away from the gospel message. And so uh, the free gospel of grace alone is where we stand. Now, you're established by the gospel, Paul went on, by the preaching of Jesus Christ. That is hearing preaching about Jesus. He must be the content of the message. I think a lot of Christians lack depth because the content of the messages they hear and that they prefer to hear are not really centered in Jesus Christ. Think of the most recent popular Christian books, not all of them, but many of them. Uh, They're about what you should or should not be doing. Or they suggest some program or some system by which you are intended to become more spiritual. Modern devotionals are geared towards reforming your life with making improvements to your behavior. I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a a 30-day devotion for husbands or wives to become better husbands or better wives, you know. Um, But I'll tell you what would be a lot quicker than it wouldn't take 30 days. It only takes a couple of minutes, and that is to just look at yourself in light of Jesus Christ. Just compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Look in the mirror of God's Word anywhere and see Christ revealed, and you'll think, 
I'm a pretty much a loser at being a husband. If I, I'm not the wife I think I am, or whatever it would be, the pastor, the whoever, and you think, you know, and not in a, you know, a negative way where you're, you know, woe is me or what, but it's like, you know, Lord, I, I just, I want to be more like you. I want to be beautiful like you. I want to be humble like you. I want to be meek like you, but at the same time, bold and in the truth and all of that. And, and we want to look at Jesus. And, you know, that's why if you're going to, you know, if you, if you want to get a devotional, my personal opinion, get a devotional that was written in the 1900s, the 1800s, get Streams in the Desert, a compilation by Elizabeth Kalman, uh, you know, guys that understood Jesus and the suffering of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of sufferings and those kinds of things, and, and make sure that what you're reading centers on the Lord, not on you bettering yourself. God's about the business of bettering you as he makes you more like Jesus, and so you need to look full in his wonderful face and get a picture of what he's like. We've been quoting Matthew Henry, who said, it's easier to build the temple than to be the temple. And that, that is the kind of thing we're talking about. It's easier for me to do 40 days of this or 30 days of that and think that I'm progressing than to just really forgive somebody who I'm holding out on or to quit getting angry, or to, uh, you know, to really allow the Lord to work in my heart. Christ needs to be preached, and him crucified and risen from the dead, and you and I sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings until the glorious day that we see him face to face, preaching about Jesus Christ. Now, God establishes you according to the revelation of a mystery, it says in verses 25 and 26. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations. The word mystery appears 28 times in the New Testament, mostly in the writings of Paul, or at least I think it does. I read that it does. I didn't actually count them. I'm, I'm gonna, this is a disclaimer. A lot of times, Bible teachers lie all the time. I just lied to you, perhaps. I did, I, I, somebody else told me that it occurred 28 times, so hopefully it was a reliable source. So if you want to check me on that, you can, but let's, let's go with that. 28 times, mostly in the writings of Paul. So Paul, we would say, was a mystery writer. You want to, kind of a segue, if you're ever looking for, some of you like to do this, some of you don't, but if you're ever looking for a segue into sharing the gospel, just, you know, you, at the water cooler, if that's where people hang out, wherever you hang out at work, just say, hey, I've been reading a great mystery writer. His name is Paul. Paul of Tarsus is his name. He, he revealed most of the mysteries in the New Testament. Uh, the word isn't found at all in the Old Testament. The Greek word is mysterion, translated mystery. It did not mean something that is obscure or incomprehensible. It meant a truth given and revealed. The men who wrote the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, we're told here, didn't fully understand everything that they wrote. All the details that lay between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus were a mystery to them and to the Old Testament saints. Paul was chosen by God to reveal those mysteries. Today, wherever the gospel that proclaims Jesus is preached, those mysteries are being made known to all. We talk freely about the rapture of the church uh, all the time. That was a mystery really uh, revealed by Paul to the Thessalonians. 
He says, and in Corinthians, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The trump of God and, the, and all, and we'll be caught up to be with the Lord. And so he's a revealer of mysteries. The great mystery Paul revealed to the Romans was the church of Jesus Christ. He explained how God has set aside Israel, but only temporarily, and how he will turn his attention to Israel again and fulfill all his promises to them. One author I was reading this, uh, this week was saying that these last few verses of Romans are like a, a summary of the whole book. We, we saw verse 25 had a lot to do with salvation. That's the early parts of Romans, Romans 1 through 8 talking about our, our wonderful salvation and justification by faith. And then 9, 10, and 11, you remember, were all about Israel and the church because the Jew was saying, how is it possible that God has set aside Israel? Where's the precedent for that? What is God doing? How can he call Gentiles to himself without them first converting to Judaism and those kinds of things? And so Paul revealed that mystery. And he said, that, you know, God is not through with Israel, but he has set them aside for a time. Right now, he's calling all men, Jews and Gentiles, into the church. The church is a new thing. It's a mystery. There is no church in the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll read commentators or hear a Bible study, and they'll talk about the church in the Old Testament. That's a confusion. They're, they're talking about the nation of Israel as if Israel was the church or the church as if it was Israel, those things have to remain distinct. God deals with distinct groups of people. He deals with Israel, his chosen nation. He deals with Gentiles. He deals with the church, Jews and Gentiles who become Christians. Uh, and, you know, we have to keep that separate. And so God is calling everyone into the church. There was no need to convert to Judaism. You, you did, if you were a Gentile and you believed Christ... That was all you had to do. The first council, uh, the church council there in Jerusalem, when they got together and some of the Judaizing teachers were there saying, we demand that Gentiles convert to Judaism, the apostles got together and they sought the Lord and, and they gave the answer. They said, well, yeah, no, they don't have to do any of that. We just recommend they don't offend Jews. How, how about you... You just be a Christian. We're not asking you to get circumcised or to obey the Sabbath or any dietary regulations, but how about you just not eat, you know, drink blood and things that were strangled in their own blood because that'll offend the Jews. It wasn't a rule. It wasn't a law. It was just love. And so Jews were struggling over this, but Gentiles were just coming into the kingdom of God. We take it for granted, but this was something mysterious, formerly unknown, but now revealed. God had to send Peter a vision, and then he had to send him to Cornelius' house, and then God had to save Cornelius while Peter was still preaching to prove to Peter that it was okay for Gentiles to be saved without becoming Jews and that they didn't have to obey any regulations and that they could eat anything they wanted to eat. And so this was a big problem uh, for the first century Jew and the first century church. Notice also here Paul's big heart for evangelism. He said here that the gospel was made known to all nations. Now, he himself wanted to go further with the gospel to places it had not gone, like Spain. So he didn't mean that every nation had the gospel. He wasn't making a, a statement that 
every nation on earth has heard the gospel. He did mean that the gospel was for every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. Jesus was and he is the Savior of all men everywhere. Paul was confident the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not sure, uh, you know, how much Paul knew about the world in terms of beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. He had some idea, you know, that that there was something out there. I, I don't know how much he, as a learned individual, knew about, you know, China or the New World or where all these different people groups were. But I do know that Paul understood that wherever he went, he could, if he could get to the language of that people, he, he could preach the gospel and that would be the power of God unto salvation. It's a universal message for all men everywhere for all time. It's not bound by culture. It's not bound by experience. It's not bound by anything. It, it's, it's a powerful message in and of itself. And so Paul said, wherever this gospel goes, wherever I can take it, it will save men for eternity when they embrace it. Now, when you think of the church, the gathering of believers, you might tend to think of it as a lot of work. And that's partially true. There is work to be done. There's building to be done, to be specific. The New Testament describes the first century apostles and prophets as laying the foundation for the church. Then we read that it's edified, which means built up by pastors who teach the saints. Within the church, there's a lot of serving to be done as we minister one to another. You know, just having a church service, ministering to the Lord and to one another, there's all kinds of things that, that have to take place behind the scenes in order for us just to meet here tonight. Within the church, there's a lot of work to be done. And in the end, believers are going to be rewarded at the bema of Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, based on the building that we have done. Specifically, we're told that uh, we're to build within the church with precious materials rather than non-precious materials, or we would say spiritual materials rather than carnal or fleshly or worldly materials, and those things that we build with that are spiritual, uh, that are yielded to the Lord with the proper motivation, they're going to give us a cause for reward. But there's another way of looking at the mystery of the church. Jesus, when he first introduced the idea of the church to his followers, he said plainly, I will build my church. He said, I will build my church. And then the apostle Peter picked up on this idea of building, and in his epistles, he called believers the living stones. And so there's a lot of arguing goes on about Peter and was, you know, was he the rock and did, did uh, the Lord build the church on Peter as the rock and was he the first pope and all of these kinds of things. I tell you what, if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know it. It was news to him when he got to heaven uh, that, you know, he was, had blown it as the first pope. He was just, a, just another apostle. Uh, you know, uh, not any more or less important than any of the other guys. But a lot is made of that rock idea. Well, Peter picked up on that rock idea. And he's, when he wrote his epistle, he didn't say, I am the rock. He said, no, we are all living stones. 
You've probably seen a commemorative or memorial wall of some kind. Over at the Kings County YMCA where we met for so long, they put one in. As you would enter the building there on your right-hand side, on the, the west side, they, they put a commemorative wall with uh, different sized stones with people's names on them who were donors uh, to the YMCA. In a spiritual but very real sense, when you get saved, you are fit into the church of Jesus Christ as one of its unique living stones. I'm not talking about the work you might do to help build a local church, about having your name on a plaque or a brick in a physical church building. Some churches do that. I know my brother and sister-in-law, when they first got saved, it seems like when you first get saved, you turn on Christian TV and you just get sucked in for a few days and you donate to it. It's just inevitable. It's one of those things that every Christian, it's like a rite of passage. And so my brother and sister-in-law, when they first got saved years ago, they were watching uh, The Hour of Power with uh, Robert Schuller. And it was a time when you could help build the Crystal Cathedral. And if you donated a certain amount, you got your name on a brick at the Crystal Cathedral. And so I don't even know, is it still the Crystal Cathedral? They were trying to sell it for a while to somebody, but for a while my brother and sister and I had their name on a brick at the Crystal Cathedral. And so, you know, that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact you are a living stone in the universal church. God put you there all on his own. So Paul's saying to you at the end of this letter, he's saying God establishes you. And you think, well, what does that mean? It means you get saved on the foundation of Jesus Christ, grace alone, through faith alone. And without doing anything, you are placed into the building that God is making, not, not the local church, although that's part of it, the universal church. And so we've said now that you're established by God as a Christian in the church. How does that happen? Verse 26, he says, it's according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. What commandment? Well, we can't say for sure, but it, it seems to be the Great Commission. Believers are told to go and make disciples of all the nations. The gospel came to you through someone walking in obedience to that Great Commission. So if you're talking about somebody being established in the gospel and becoming a living stone, how does that happen? Well, you hear the gospel and you respond to it. Someone brought that message to you. If, if you grew up in a Christian home, it was your parents. And maybe you're saved from a young age. You can't really remember when you got saved, but you know that you have Jesus in your heart. If you got saved later in life, like many of us did, it, you know, it came to you in some other fashion. And it, actually, when you think about it, it's kind of interesting. It comes to you through lots of someones. One person may have led you to Christ. Uh, take my testimony, for example. I often say that Lauren Faulkner in Riverside, California, at Jay's Coffee Shop one morning, prayed the sinner's prayer with me and led me to Christ. But before that, I had watched a movie that Hal Lindsey had produced from his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and all the people that put that together. And before that, somebody had to share with Hal Lindsey, and he had to become a Christian. And on and on and on. Uh, and so even if one person led you to the Lord, someone led them. And it may have been through a tract someone wrote and someone else funded. Or maybe it was you're hearing the gospel in church where perhaps hundreds of people or thousands of people over decades supported the work. 
so that you could sit there one day and hear about Jesus. Do you ever think about that? I mean, we're sitting here, whatever it is, August 1st. I know it's August 1st because I was at the bank today. Man, I almost lost it. Remind me, what I'm talking about is all the people that help get this church together. But so I'm at the, I'm standing outside the doors. I don't usually do this, but I thought I want to be first in line. I actually thought I want to be first in line because I have a lot to do. I can't be messing around at the bank. So I'm out there. And so this nice elderly guy comes, we start up a conversation, but he took a posture that was okay with me. I could tell he, you know, he, he knew he was second in line. And then this lady came over and I could tell she was going to be trouble right away. <laughs> and sure enough, when that door opened, it was ladies first as far as she was concerned, and she took my spot in line, and I, I had to fight the urge. I thought, okay, can I still be a Christian if I talk to the guy behind me and say, yeah, I was here first, but this nice lady cut in front of me, I guess she's really, you know, in a hurry. And then she had some kind of crazy business. You know, it's never easy. It's always, you know, she wants to send a, you know, a money order to three people in Beirut, but she doesn't know who their names are or something like that. You know, it's, it's something like that. Anyway, so think of it. Back to our text. Here, we're, we're sitting here tonight. I'm teaching and you're, you know, listening and your kids and all this is going on in a building that is being funded by the tithes and offerings of this congregation in a building that was funded by the tithes and offerings of a previous congregation, many actually, that was built in the 1950s by the Baptists who before that had another building that was, you know, who before that came here and all. And when you stop and think about it, I mean, we, it's like going back, it's like when they talk about the genetics, how genetically we go back to one female, one African woman named Eve, how they can prove that now. We knew that all along, Right? What's news about that? Where's the real genetic news? So we all know that. But we all go back to the, to, to the apostles and, and we all go back before that. We go back all the way to the beginning spiritually as well because all of these connections have to be made so that you and I can just sit here tonight and hear the gospel and be encouraged and edified. I mean, think of all the crazy different directions that people could have gone in so that there wasn't a First Baptist Church of Hanford that became Calvary Chapel of Hanford or those kinds of things. Uh, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. Obedience to the faith, then, would be obeying the Great Commission. But even that's not a work, per se. You see, the command to go means as you are going. And so Jesus, you know, he wasn't just giving a command to go on the foreign mission field. That's great. He was saying, look, here's what's going to happen now. And I know that's what he's meant because you see it immediately in the book of Acts. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make dis uh, making disciples of all nations. And then in Acts, you see how that happens. He gives the Holy Spirit to every Christian. You, you're, you're born again. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon you to empower your witness wherever you are. And then wherever you are, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or in the other parts of the earth, you witness for Christ. And so we still haven't gotten to anything that is a work that you do. All you do is kind of 
get saved and get into the church and find out that you have a unique and special place that your your name is on the church and then God empowers you to be in the chain of connection with many, many other people. If you give, for example, and not that we're you know trying to do a fundraiser here, but if you give a dollar to the church, to this church, everything that we support and sponsor, you are gonna get rewarded for. That's pretty cool. You don't even know what's going on half the time. Missionaries all over the place, you know, and stuff that got like a, a, a fraction of one penny of the dollar that you gave or 10 cents of it or a quarter of it. And, and you're, you know, but not just your reward in heaven, but you're actually furthering that work all over the earth. So we're all connected like that. And so this is what I think Paul is getting at when he says God has established you. You're a Christian, the church, in the chain of connection of the gospel with every believer before you and after you, and you've got the Holy Spirit in you and upon you to be a witness. God has done all that work. It's like walking into an established business and simply reaping the benefits. Now, what you do with that, that's up to you. More than one son has taken over his father's established business only to run it into the ground. You probably have a story like that or know somebody like that where the parents turn the business over to their children and then they killed the thing. You could make a modern parable out of the illustration of an established business being wrecked. In some cases, it's because the son has no work ethic. For us, although works of righteousness are not necessary for salvation, we ought to yield ourselves to righteousness and do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. He saved us so we could make something of our lives, not ruin them. In some cases, the established business fails because the son treats the patrons badly. We certainly can forget all the one another verses and mistreat each other. In other cases, the son who takes over takes all he can get from the business, spends it on his own pursuits. Sad to say, but there are believers who are looking to God only for material and physical prosperity. Now, we know that Paul dictated most of his letters Earlier in verse 22, he mentioned that uh, Tertius had written down the letter. He often at the end of the letter said he was signing it in his own hand. Likely at this point in dictating the letter, Paul took the pen and wrote the following. He said in verse 27, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. God alone is wise in that he is God of both Jew and Gentile with provision for both groups in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this last phrase, be glory through Jesus Christ forever, and it just struck me as a great motto. I, I don't know if it's, you know, intended to be a motto, or if it was, you know, the first Christian t-shirt or whatever, but I was thinking, you know, Marines, they say Semper Five, always faithful. The Coast Guard motto is, some of you guys know this, Semper Paratus, always ready, I think, if the internet is accurate, and those same guys that told me there were 28 instances of mystery... <laughs> Be glory through Jesus Christ forever would make a great motto for you and I. Think of it, no matter what happens, no matter where you are, no matter what suffering, no matter what difficulty, no matter what blessing, no matter what, to be able to say, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. So people say, hey, what's the, this is happening in your life. Glory to God through Jesus Christ forever. You're down in the dumps. You're, you're getting stomped in the ground. Glory through Jesus Christ forever. Man, God has really blessed you with, you know, glory 
because that's all we really care about, isn't it? That God would be glorified through Jesus Christ forever and that that connection could keep going on and on and on till the Lord comes for us. Be established. Amen.